0: Although people had been finding the bones of giant reptiles in the ground for many years, it wasn't until 1842 when a British paleontologist named Sir Richard Owen gave these terrible lizards the name dinosaurs. As a result, for a few decades at least, England was considered the epicenter of paleontology, with the United States still being considered little more than a scientific backwater. That all changed between 1870 and 1890 when a pair of brilliant American paleontologists rose to the forefront of the field, publishing more than a thousand scientific papers between them and introducing the world to dozens of new dinosaur species. Edward Drinker Cope was born in Philadelphia on July 28, 1840 to a prosperous Quaker family. Although he had a few periods of formal education, Cope was primarily a self-taught prodigy, He published his first scientific paper at the age of 18. His father encouraged him to carry on working on the family farm, but Cope had bigger dreams of becoming a scientist, and eventually his father accepted his son's dreams and helped him pursue them. After doing considerable traveling throughout Europe, he returned to the U.S., and using his father's connections, Edward Cope obtained an honorary degree from Haverford College, which allowed him to take a teaching position there. He later parlayed that teaching position into a number of other prestigious positions in the scientific community and built a reputation for himself as a charming and brilliant scientist. Othniel Charles Marsh was born on October 29, 1831. He was a poor farm boy from rural New York, and he might have remained that way were it not for his wealthy uncle, George Peabody. The legendary philanthropist put his nephew through Andover and Yale. That in 1866 Peabody insured Marsh's place in society by giving a major endowment to Yale. In return, Yale named O.C. Marsh as their first chair of paleontology. It was an unpaid position, but one that would provide him with considerable power and prestige within the scientific community. Marsh was a firm believer in Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, which instantly put him at odds with Cope's Quaker upbringing. Marsh was always considered to be a slower and more deliberate thinker than Cope, and much more politically savvy, which would help him in his career in years to come. Each of these men were responsible for advancing and legitimizing the science of paleontology far beyond anything that had come before. So of course, the two of them did the only sensible thing a couple of the most brilliant and respected scientists at the top of their field would do. They went to war. I'm Nate Hale, currently on display 7 days a week at the Museum of Natural History, and this is The Conspirators. The way fossil hunting worked back in the 1800s probably isn't quite what you're picturing in your mind. If you're like me, you probably imagine something like the early scenes in Jurassic Park, with a group of dirt cake scientists out digging in the desert. In actuality, it was pretty rare for a scientist in that era to go out in the field and do his own digging. Rather, in most instances, scientists relied on local diggers to unearth new specimens and ship them to their labs, where the scientists would then get the rights to study and quite possibly name them. That is, if it turns out the scientists managed to get their hands on a species that hadn't been discovered yet. Because so many people were digging up new fossils all across the United States, this turned into a veritable scientific gold rush, with paleontologists around the world hoping to make a name for themselves by discovering the next new dinosaur. There are a number of anecdotes about the intense competition that went on back then between competing scientists. But none of the stories compares to the intense and often ridiculous rivalry between Edward Cope and O.C. Marsh. In some history books, you'll hear their clash called the Great Dinosaur Rush. But more often, you'll hear it referred to as the Bone Wars. When Cope and Marsh first met as students in Berlin in 1864, they were actually quite respectful of one another. In fact, in 1867, upon returning to the United States, Cope named an amphibian fossil after Marsh. The following year, Marsh returned the favor and named a new species of dinosaur after Cope. Things didn't remain quite so amicable between the two men for very long, though. In 1868, in an act of friendship, Edward Cope showed O.C. Marsh around a fossil quarry in Haddonfield, New Jersey, from which he'd been obtaining many new fossil specimens. What Cope didn't know was that Marsh wasn't quite the friend he thought he was. Marsh secretly resented Cope for his wealthy upbringing and lack of formal education. And he didn't consider Cope to be a real scientist. Marsh went behind Cope's back and cut a deal with the quarry owner to send any new fossils directly to him at Yale. When Cope found out what Marsh did, he was stunned and furious at the betrayal. Right around the same time, Cope rushed to publish an article describing a new species of plesiosaur he received from an army surgeon in Kansas. He named the creature Elasmosaurus platiorus. But in his hasty reconstruction of the dinosaur, he mistakenly reversed the vertebrae and positioned the head on the creature's tail. Marsh was the first to point out the blunder. The two men got into a heated argument over who was right. They called on Joseph Leidy, one of the most renowned paleontologists of the era, and Cope's former professor and mentor to settle the argument. Lydie took one look at the specimen and agreed with Marsh's assessment that Cope had made a huge mistake. Publicly humiliated, Cope quickly published a correction and tried to buy out every copy of the scientific journal where he'd published his original findings, but the damage had been done. So the story goes that Marsh kept several copies of the article for himself and delighted in showing them off to friends and colleagues. One little side note to the story is that years later, Marsh made his own massive blunder and managed to inadvertently event a new species of dinosaur that we're all familiar with today, even though it never really existed. In 1877, Marsh discovered the partial skeleton of a long-necked, leaf-eating dinosaur he called Apatosaurus. Two years later, he received another partial skeleton of what he believed to be a completely different and unknown species of dinosaur. He was wrong, though. It was just a more complete Apatosaurus skeleton, In order to complete the skeleton, Marsh attached the head of a totally different dinosaur, the Camarasaurus. From there, Marsh unveiled his new species of dinosaur to the world, dubbing it the Brontosaurus, a name that conjures up visions of Fred Flintstone and many people even today. By 1903, Marsh's mistake was spotted by other scientists, but the damage was done, and the Brontosaurus has lived on in books, movies, and children's imaginations ever since. In the 1870s, word began to reach Marsh and Cope that the American West was practically littered with dinosaur fossils. They each used their personal fortunes and connections to fund rival expeditions into the Western territories. This was a dangerous endeavor because so much of the American West was still untamed and full of outlaws and hostile Indian tribes. As a matter of fact, among the many guides Marsh would go on to employ was none other than Buffalo Bill Cody. Cope's first western expedition would cause friction between him and his former mentor Joseph Leidy, because one of the territories in Wyoming he was going to explore was an area from which Leidy had already begun obtaining fossils. Things grew even more tense between Marsh and Cope, when Cope hired a group of fossil hunters that included a group of Marsh's men. Marsh was furious, of course, although the two men claimed they were still loyal to Marsh and were just doing it for the money. By 1873, Marsh and Cope weren't even hiding their hostility towards one another anymore. Both men took to sending out hasty telegrams in order to secure both bragging and naming rights to the new species they were discovering. The problem was, the two men were often naming species that weren't quite so new after all. In many instances, Cope and Marsh were naming and renaming species that had already been discovered. Throw into the mix the fact that they were both at the mercy of the telegraph operators, who had to type in the complex and unusual nomenclature Cope and Marsh dictated to them, and it created scientific naming chaos. In their haste to best one another, Cope and Marsh named so many species that there are still contested scientific names that haven't been completely sorted out to this day. Competition grew so heated between Cope and Marsh that Joseph Leidy tried to keep up with them, but he eventually just gave up. All the dirty tricks and double dealings that went on between the two rivals were enough to drive Lydie to quit the field of paleontology entirely. Paleontology's loss actually turned out to be good for society, though. After quitting the dinosaur hunt, Lydie turned his attention to studying other life forms and became a leader in the field of parasitology. His work helped discover the cause of trichinosis, parasitic worms that grow in undercooked food. There's little doubt that many lives were saved by Leidy being driven out of the field of paleontology by Cope and Marsh's antics. In 1877, a schoolteacher from Golden, Colorado sent fossil samples to Marsh and Cope to see if either was interested. Marsh paid the man $100 to keep his mouth shut and not inform Cope, but it was too late. Cope already knew. As word got out that Marsh and Cope were competing for fossils, a lot of diggers began to realize they had an opportunity to make some real money off these two men. When some railroad workers discovered a massive bone field northwest of Laramie in Como Bluff, they informed Marsh first, threatening to reveal their fine to cope if he didn't pay up. Marsh paid a large sum to keep them quiet. He dispatched an agent, Samuel Wendell Williston, to take charge of the dig site. Word got around about the arrangement, though, and as the story got passed around, so did the amount Marsh paid get exaggerated. Cope sent his own men to negotiate for specimens, but when the asking price grew too high, he gave his men another order, get the bones from Marsh using any means necessary, even if they had to steal them. One of Marsh's men later grew frustrated with his boss's inconsistent payments, so he flipped sides and began to work for Cope, helping him to steal his former employer's fossils. Thus began a campaign between the two groups of spying, bribery, sabotage, and physical attacks against one another. On more than one occasion, the two groups threw rocks at each other and drew pistols to scare the others away. On one occasion, Cope himself apparently snuck into Marsh's camp in disguise and managed to win over many of his rival's workers with his warm and charming personality. Back in his own camp, Cope grew so frustrated with the number of fossils Marsh's men had stolen from him that he had his own men steal a train full of Marsh's fossils and had it redirected to him in Philadelphia. Marsh was so determined to come out on top of their bitter feud, that he resorted to stealing skulls from an American Indian burial platform, violating numerous treaties in the process. Marsh became so protective of his own fossil sites, there's even a story that says he had his men use dynamite on one of his dig sites to prevent Cope from getting his hands on any of his specimens. That same year, in order to get his work recognized, Cope purchased his own journal, The American Naturalist. The journal would prove to be a financial drain on Cope's personal fortune, but it was also a perfect outlet to get his scientific findings published. Between 1879 and 1880, Cope published 76 academic papers, which is just a fraction of the more than 1,400 articles he would publish throughout his lifetime. To this day, he still holds the record as the most prolific author in scientific history. In 1882, Marsh used his political connections to attempt to drive Cope out of business. Using his connections in Washington, D.C., Marsh landed himself an unpaid job as the chief paleontologist for the newly formed U.S. Geological Survey. This gave him not only access to federal funds, but also to the legitimacy and political power that came with the position. He used his power to cut off any government funding Cope had been receiving. This left Cope in a tough financial spot, His personal fortune that he'd inherited from his father was rapidly dwindling. In a desperate effort to keep his expeditions going, Cope invested what was left of his money in a silver mining venture in New Mexico. But the deal went bust, and Cope lost everything. By 1890, Cope was separated from his wife and child and living alone in a small apartment in Philadelphia. He did manage to get a job as the head of the National Association for the Advancement of Science, but it wasn't enough to prevent his downward spiral. He had driven himself nearly to bankruptcy with his insane competition with Marsh. All he really had left in the world was his enormous fossil collection. Marsh made a huge mistake when he tried to seize Cope's collection, believing they had been collected with federal funds. But Cope had itemized receipts going back 20 years to prove that nearly everything in his collection had been paid for out of his own pocket. This attack was the final straw for Cope. The only avenue he had left to strike back at Marsh was in the press. For years, Cope had been collecting information on every dirty deal and scientific impropriety Marsh had ever been involved in. He turned all his notes over to a journalist at the New York Herald, and in two weeks the headline, Scientists Wage Bitter Warfare, set off a wildfire of accusations. The Herald published stories accusing Marsh and the USGS of corruption, gross incompetence, and misuse of government funds. Congress investigated and slashed the USGS's funding, and eliminated the Department of Paleontology entirely. Marsh lost his job and all his political clout. To make matters worse, the Smithsonian Institute demanded Marsh turn over a substantial portion of his fossil collection, since much of it had been collected using government funds. This was the very same attack Marsh had attempted to use on COPE months earlier. By some standards, Marsh won the Bone Wars. Although both men made significant contributions to the field of paleontology, Marsh is credited with discovering a total of 86 new species of dinosaurs, while Cope discovered 56. Although in retrospect, both men were losers in the war. Both of them had managed to irreparably damage their reputations. The financially destitute Cope tried to sell his beloved fossil collection but found it nearly impossible to find a buyer willing to pay what it was worth. He finally settled for a payout of $32,000 from the American Museum of Natural History. In 1897, with nothing left in the world, Cope fell ill and died at the age of 56. Marsh didn't fare much better. Two years later, in 1899, at the age of 67, Marsh died of pneumonia. At the time of his passing, he had just $186 in his bank account. Cope and Marsh's outrageous and destructive behavior also managed to cement their place in history. Despite the often ridiculous nature of their rivalry, the two men are still considered giants in the field of paleontology. Many species have been named for both men in tribute, and both their houses are designated National Historical Landmarks. Although the Bone Wars came to a sad ending, there's still one battle between Cope and Marsh that remains unresolved. Before his death, Cope left his body to science, on the condition that scientists dissect his skull to determine whether his brain was bigger than Marsh's. Marsh declined the request. Edward Drinker Cope's skull is still in storage at the University of Pennsylvania, just waiting for the day some enterprising paleontologist might dig up Marsh's skull for comparison. Just as long as he or she doesn't mix them up. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to download us on iTunes and leave us a review. As always, we're also available on theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks for listening. It seems like kids these days aren't going through an awkward stage. It's really not fair, because Lord knows we did. So what were you like as a kid? What claws did? I didn't understand my vagina. I was psychotic. (laughs) I was out of my mind. But hey, if there's one thing that connects us all, that just brings people together, it's our cringe. It's being cringy. This is Awkward Stage, the podcast that dives into the most embarrassing moments from the most awkward stages of our life. I'm Nicole and I'm Alina and we're your hosts and the trusted guides to draw the deeply buried cringe out of each of our wonderfully awkward guests. New episodes every Wednesday. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, the trailer's ending so just say something not awkward. Okay, I love you. Perfect.